Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, power to the people. A citizens' assembly is the way to make up the democratic deficit, which leaves many people feeling estranged from Parliament. Sue Gray, the former senior civil servant who reported on Partygate during Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister, has given her first interview as Chief of Staff to Labour leader Keir Starmer. In it, she revealed that plans are being drawn up to bypass Whitehall and involve the public directly in decision-making if Labour should win the next election. Citizens' assemblies are credited with building consensus in Ireland for allowing gay marriage and ending the ban on abortion. But what exactly are they? How do they work? And will they undermine the role of MPs? Sarah Castell is CEO of the Involve Foundation, which aims to put people at the heart of decision-making. Rebecca Willis is a Professor of Energy and Climate Governance at Lancaster University and was behind the Climate Assembly, which worked with the UK Parliament in 2020. Welcome both. Sarah, let me start with you, because you've got some experience of actually building citizens' assemblies. So explain exactly what they are and how they might work. Hello, yes. Involve spends all its time running, designing, delivering and advocating for citizens' assemblies and panels and all other ways of involving the public in decision making. So assemblies and juries, things like that, are representative groups of people, people from all walks of life who come together to hear lots of different information and evidence from a balanced group of experts. And then they share their experience and their thoughts and they come to judgment about a complex or knotty or difficult issue. And the recommendations that they make help decision makers like MPs or leaders of councils or any decision maker come to a view of what's best to do. So they're different from, say, an opinion poll or a a snapshot of research or just what the public opinion is at any given moment. They're a way to bring people right into the trade-offs of the most difficult decisions we face. And that's why I think they are a really brilliant democratic innovation. They're being used all over the world and they are something that we should do in the UK. What's the history of them then? Where do they come from? There are two stories you can tell about this, really. One is all about going back to Athens and saying that, you know, sortition and people being drawn by lot to be part of all the different ways that Athens was governed. That was something that happened. And then you can talk about deliberative polling in the 1980s and James Fishkin, who's a political scientist who reintroduced that idea. And then the deliberative wave, this big burst of energy where lots of different deliberative processes were carried out all over the world, in Ireland particularly, as you mentioned, and also in Canada and Iceland, places like that. But I think the better story is the more human story, which is that we've always come together to sort of talk out our differences in groups and to find common ground. And really the story of humanity, I think, not just in the West or in parliamentary democracies, it's all been about different folks coming together and trying to work out what's best to do and trying to make sure that everybody has a say. And that's how human advances have been made. And I think it's just the latest version of that. So just so I understand this properly, then you would assemble a random group of what, 100 people, ordinary citizens, and they would reflect the broad demography of the nation by age, by gender, by race, and so on. Those people would be invited to participate. They'd all meet together, perhaps in a room, perhaps on Zoom, and they would then come to a consensus under the guidance of a chairperson on this particular knotty issue whatever it is that they may be discussing. 
Yeah, that's right. And it's not just a random selection of people. Huge numbers of people are often given the chance to participate. So there's a process where you send out sometimes 30,000 letters to get 100 people. We've done that in the past with assemblies that we've run. People then volunteer to take part and then crucially they're supported to take part. So one of the criticisms that some people make of citizens assemblies or misapprehensions that they have about them, perhaps, is that it's just the kind of group of people who are selected at random. And then don't you just get the usual suspects or people who have time and interest in taking part? But I think the real skill in the delivery of it, and there's people sort of working in this sector who have given their lives to this sort of subtle way of doing it, um, is the way that people are onboarded and, and brought along with the process. Sometimes members of my team are going to people's houses, bringing them laptops, physically taking them to places, helping them to sort out their childcare, helping them to feel comfortable with the idea that their voices will be heard. And that's how you can get not just the people that are comfortable talking and speaking in public forums, but people who maybe have never had their voices heard before or don't really feel that they have a place there and you can bring them in and make sure that your group of people really does reflect a snapshot of the world as it is and not just the usual elites who speak to these issues. We're going to speak to Rebecca in a moment about the assembly she was on relating to climate change, but I just want to ask you about that area. For example, Sarah, if you've got a citizens' assembly around climate change, with the best will in the world, won't you inevitably attract people, however hard you try, who believe passionately that climate change is a reality and who are in some way engaged with the process of climate change? Won't it have an inbuilt bias towards a particular way of dealing with climate change? Well, Part of the answer to that is it depends how you recruit it, because you could ask questions as part of the sortition. If, for example, you want a climate assembly that asks a question which doesn't assume that climate change is a reality, then you might want to get a selection of people, some of who do believe it is, some of who don't. I think that question is a little bit of a red herring for now, because usually the questions asked in climate assemblies are more about, we've aimed to reach net zero, how do we get there? Or we have this pledge or this way of doing it, what's the right way of doing it in this local area? Or what's the strategy that should be adopted? Setting the question is really critical in these kind of things. It's not just a general, what do you reckon to this kind of process? Process, it'll be a question that really helps a decision maker make a tough decision. So it could be, how do we reach our net zero goals, given the trade-offs we have in this area? And how would you as citizens really like this to happen? And what can you live with? And what can you not live with? And then I think you might not want to be debating some of the underpinning pieces of evidence, you might instead want to ensure that you have an advisory body of experts, which we can come on to, to Becky, who may talk to this, but an advisory body of folks who are able to say, well, this is the state of play on the evidence. Here are some balanced people from different sides of any debate that exists, and we'll make sure that the evidence that we present to the Assembly is really rounded and really grounded in what's known. And that evidence is public, of course. So you don't do it behind closed doors. You publish on a website or somewhere in the public domain all the things that you've shown to the assembly. So anyone could go and look and say, OK, I feel like this group of people have been given a good grounding in the issues. They've not just been spoken to about something that forces them down a particular track. But essentially, in the selection process, these are people who are not professionally engaged in the topic that is under discussion. They are, as far as is reasonably possible, a broad cross-section of society. 
yeah, they're the people who would be affected by any policies that were developed. So they're people who could have a say in it. If it's a moral and ethical issue, that could be any member of the country. That could be any person here. If it's about a particular local issue, you might want local people. If it's about a particular issue around health and medicine, you might want folks who've got lived experience of certain health conditions, for example, or you might want them to come in as experts. The, the building of it depends on the question and the question should be answered by people for whom the decisions will affect their lives. And Rebecca, you've got experience of this then. You were involved in drawing up recommendations for the Climate Select Committee in the House of Commons. Is that right? Yeah. So I worked with Sarah's organisation Involve, and it's their job to run a really good citizens' assembly, but are neutral about the content of it. And they work with people that they call expert leads. So that was my role. I'm an expert on climate governance. So it was my job to help steer the discussions, make sure that the participants had balanced and accurate information in front of them, help to shape the discussions in ways that were meaningful to people and which also reflected the debate that's going on in the policy world about how we respond to climate change. So just to pick up your earlier point, Adrian, about was the room packed out with people who are passionate about climate change, we deliberately made sure that didn't happen. We asked the people invited how concerned they were about climate change, mirroring a question that's asked every year through a national opinion poll. And we selected a balance of people based on that poll, the same percentage as across the population in the whole. We had people who do not accept the scientific consensus on climate change, people that were passionate climate advocates. And most importantly, we had the people in between who say that they're somewhat concerned or fairly concerned about climate, don't sort of see it as part of their identity, if you like. You know, they know climate's coming down the tracks. They're sort of worried about it, but they so far haven't actually been involved in discussions about what we do as a society. And when you speak to those people who are involved in those processes, there's a couple of things that really come out. The first thing is they're really pleased to be asked to be involved. And the second thing is that you can see that sort of learning process and you can see how impactful it is for them to be able to deliberate with people from all walks of life to come up with a shared programme of action on something as big and difficult as climate. So the group was then drawn up in your case, Rebecca, to reflect the range of opinion around climate change, including climate sceptics. Yeah, and that's very important because even if you don't accept the scientific consensus on climate change, you are living in a society in the UK who have, through Parliament, agreed to reach a goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So you are part of that process by the law of the land. And so you should have a right in discussing how we get there. And another important thing, actually, and my colleague at Lancaster, Rachel Coxcoon, has also shown that it's really important to select for people's political worldview because you need to have a microcosm in political terms as well from people who, broadly speaking, see sort of more communitarian, maybe traditionally thought of as left-wing responses to things through to people who might take a more sort of individualist or market-based approach to things. And that hasn't traditionally been asked when we pull these people together because it's seen as quite personal to ask about people's political worldview. But we firmly believe that that should be part of the recruitment as well, because then you can guarantee that you have a very balanced segment of the population. 
And honestly, the magic of seeing those people interact is really quite something. When I first walked into that room in Birmingham and I saw a hundred odd people who were reflective of my country as a whole, it's a really powerful moment for those of us involved as well as the participants who'd been selected. And Sarah, in Ireland, I say it's been credited with effectively leading to a change in the law on two very vexed issues in Irish society, abortion and gay marriage. How did that come about? Well, taking the abortion one as a first example, at the beginning of that assembly process, from memory, I think there were less than 25% of the public as a whole in Ireland in favour of termination without restriction or whatever the wording was. But by the time that the referendum had come where the public were going to be asked as a whole, that had increased. And the Citizens' Assembly took place between that first poll and the referendum. And what caused what is perhaps something that's harder to claim. But there's something about the process of the assembly happening. It was done transparently. People knew it was going to occur and they knew that there was going to be this opening of this question, which had been a generationally challenging question and spoke to some very deeply held feelings, moral and ethical feelings. And I think that feeling that Rebecca was talking about of people coming together and seeing one another, looking into each other's eyes and respecting one another and talking about their issues um, allowed people to, to perhaps draw the sting from something which had been quite a divisive issue. And then the interesting thing was that by the end of their process, and they'd gone through all that discussion, 64% voted in favour of termination without restriction. And then that was pretty much the same. I think it was 66% of those who voted in the referendum in favour of that. So I think there's something in the case that citizens' assemblies give you what the public would think if they had the time and space to consider the issues, and they can be something of a future focus. So when something comes up the political agenda, when it becomes salient, you then know maybe what the public really want and what they'll do. And so if you're a decision maker and you're thinking, should I be debating this in Parliament? Should I be considering this and building policy around it. The Citizens' Assembly helps to steer you and give you a glimpse of some possible futures around that. And I think that was one of the benefits of it. Sometimes people say, oh, well, it's great because the Citizens' Assembly then said this and then the policy changed to match it. We got that policy through. And that really isn't the purpose of them. The purpose is to have that open space to discuss, to talk about how and why, and to talk about how we then communicate it to people who may have different views. Many members of that Assembly would have taken different positions and expressed themselves in different ways. And the government was unable to take on board all of that learning as well in the way that it then carried on talking about the issue afterwards. Rebecca, were you encouraged in this time of political polarisation, of culture wars, whereby politicians seek to deliberately stoke up division between different parts of our community or communities, that when people actually sat down and talked with each other, they were able to reach a consensus? Absolutely. I mean, it's a cliche, isn't it, to say that people are rude to each other on social media because it provides that anonymity and sometimes unhelpful anonymity. And yes, there's nothing like seeing people speak to each other, explore each other's views, which actually happens just as much in the breaks as, as in the actual discussion. It is really seeing democracy work firsthand. But I also think it's important for the politicians because on climate, for example, Politicians are incredibly cautious. They worry about suggesting things which they feel might be sort of treading on people's liberties in the terms of restricting car use, for example, or promoting veganism or whatever that might be. 
And so although politicians are now pretty concerned about climate and want to do something about it, they don't think they have a public mandate for action. And then on the other side of things, our research with citizen panels has shown that people are desperately worried about climate and they don't have confidence in politicians to sort it for them. So you've got a sort of silent standoff between politicians on the one hand and citizens on the other. So these kinds of fora are really a way of exploring between decision makers and citizens what the room is for manoeuvre and what the shared agenda might look like. And it's so much more of a productive way of doing that than having a row on social media and gives you so much more nuance and information than you get from putting a cross in a box every five years as a way of giving feedback for 650 politicians over five years. So I think it really helps elected politicians to do their job better by getting a much deeper understanding of where citizens are on these issues, which includes, by the way, where the disagreement is, as well as where the consensus is. Your Climate Assembly produced a full report in 2020. It's an excellent piece of work. And I know that you continue to be in discussion with the select committee. They continue to talk, I think, to members of your assembly. But the final report that you produced said, effectively, there should be more taxes on flying, that people should be encouraged to eat less meat, for example. These are the very topics that get the right-leaning newspapers into a frenzy, which then make particularly this current government wary of introducing change, but that may also apply to another government as well. So how do you translate a progressive report like that into parliamentary action when you have a government that really doesn't want to hear the message? Sure. So remember, those weren't my conclusions. They were the conclusions of the citizens, both through their discussions and also through a voting process, which happened in private. So people could express their views on those different policies. And I agree with you that issues like reducing meat consumption or reducing demand for flying are quite controversial. But they're also a very good way of meeting the emissions reduction we need in a fair way, if you look at the research. And that's what the citizens endorsed. So I think that they can be used by forward-thinking politicians as a way of making that case more widely with the public. And the missed opportunity of Climate Assembly UK, partly because of where it came in the electoral cycle, was that political leaders did not use it in a way they could have done to say, it's not me telling you to eat less meat. It's actually a jury of your peers has looked at the evidence and said there are really good economic reasons, health reasons and climate reasons, not for us all to go vegan overnight, but for us all to cut down on meat and dairy consumption. And they could use citizens' assemblies and use the participants in citizens' assemblies to have that dialogue with the wider public and to a certain extent to circumvent the sort of media sniping. And there's emerging research to show that people are more likely to trust decisions or conclusions that were come to by people like me. In a sense, this is a very positive form of populism that you're actually getting real people to speak to real people about what should be done. So a far-sighted politician could actually harness that sort of anti-expert sentiment and use citizens' assemblies to show the way forward. 
And when you say people like me, you don't mean like you, you mean people like them. Exactly. People like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Sarah, I mean, that's the gap, isn't it, in citizens' assemblies in the UK at the moment between recommendations and some kind of tie to legislation. And that, I think, is a difficult area because ultimately we elect MPs they are our representatives in Parliament. Our citizens' assemblies, if you notch them up a little bit so that they do have some kind of legislative power, do you not then undermine the MPs in the House of Commons who are ultimately electorally responsible to us all in a way that citizens' assemblies aren't? Yeah, you've got to balance the efficiency of bringing in that more knowledge with the legitimacy of representative democracy. And I certainly wouldn't say that citizens' assemblies should be binding on politicians or should be always tied into a specific legislation agenda. I think, again, it's about the question that you ask. Some of the best assemblies are about the policy. So locally, um, they've just done one in Yorkshire. The mayor of Yorkshire has looked at some other climate issues and talked about how is Yorkshire going to move along that route. And that has legitimacy because he has promised to take on board what's said and feed that into then his agenda and his activities. I think you're right that the gap in the UK is that we haven't confirmed from the very top of government that these are things which can shift us and can move us. And that's why I was so excited, I think, to see Sue Gray talking about this this week and to hear the calls from Across the parties, you know, William Hague's asked for it. Rory Stewart has respected journalists like Martin Wolf in the Financial Times. So many people are saying this could be a really good way to get greater space to act for decision makers. And I think that's the opportunity to take now, the generational moment, actually, for the UK to take its place among the most progressive governments of the world in terms of the way it governs, is to say right from the top, whoever's prime minister, yes, we think this is a great idea. We're going to appoint someone, uh, as the prime minister did in Ireland, appointed Arto Leary to run this to make it happen and design it and build it into our system of government, have a a lot of civil servants who know how to do it and can run it properly. And then here is how it will feed into our decision making in a measured way, in a legitimate way, in an efficient way, and in a way that everyone can understand. I think a lot of the comments that are made at the moment about won't it affect legitimate decision making are really based on people not really knowing how it could work and what boundaries you could place around it and how it should fit in with what we have already. So I think it's a great idea. It's an idea that's time has come. It's an idea that's in use in the rest of the world. And the designing in of it is in a way the easy bit be really interesting to see if Labour win the general election, if they do follow through and start implementing citizens' assemblies. Really, really fascinating food for thought, though. Thank you to Sarah Castell and to Rebecca Willis. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Before I go, I just want to tell you, given that we've got a general election coming up this year and we're talking about democracy, we've got a crowdfunding campaign going on called Vote Watch 24. We want to expose misinformation and misconduct long before polling day so that it doesn't make the political debate toxic and so that voters know what they're up against. So maybe you've seen doctored footage of a politician generated by AI. Maybe you've had trouble getting hold of voter ID. Maybe your local candidate has been spreading fake news or soliciting dodgy donations. If that's the case, then do get in touch with us and do support our crowdfunding campaign. You can go to subscribe.bylinetimes.com slash votewatch. That's subscribe dot bylinetimes.com slash vote watch. 
Thank you for listening. This has been a We Bring Audio production made in Birmingham by me and Harvey White. We'll see you again very soon. But for now, thanks for listening and cheers. Bye-bye.